Hello and welcome to our podcast, Be the Change. I'm your host, Emma Christie, and co-host Marissa Matala. Today we're joined by Kelly Nielsen to talk about food relationships and eating disorders. Thank you. So I am a registered dietitian and I have a private practice called Nutrition for Hope where I help individuals struggling with um, disordered eating and eating disorders. And my practice is completely virtual, so I'm able to reach people um, wherever they are, which is really nice to be able to have that accessibility factor of my business. My mission is to really help people to heal their relationships with food and to be able to live the kind of life that they want to without having worry or stress about food or their body or exercise interfere with that and they're able to really engage in their life in the way that they want to. Why did you want to be a registered dietitian and what has been your experience helping people? Yeah, that's such a good question. So I didn't always know I wanted to be a dietitian. In fact, I didn't even know that it was a career. I I had always been interested in nutrition when I was growing up, just kind of fascinated by um, different nutrients that exist. And uh, I like the digestive system was always my favorite topic to go over in science. I was just so excited by it. (laughs) I guess that was the nerdy part of me. But um, I also come from quite a foodie family. So I grew up just loving to cook and just being surrounded by really good food. And um, in high school, I took culinary classes and just really, I I wanted to go to culinary school. I thought that was what my path was. Um, But when I read a book called Man's Search for Meaning in my senior English class, it was a big turning point for me because I got to see the power of psychology in helping you to overcome adversity. Um, And if you don't know that book, it's it's amazing. It's about a Holocaust survivor and it's just incredible. So um, I went to college thinking that I was going to be a therapist and I just had decided I'm going to help people with eating disorders. And when I took my first psych 101 class, I just had decided it wasn't for me. It just wasn't, didn't feel right, like the right fit. And so I was back to square one, exploring different options. I went to a major fair at at my university and I found the dietetics booth and it was just like the stars aligned, like everything clicked. It was the perfect combination of all of my skills and interests and what I was passionate about. And so from that moment forward, I just have loved dietetics and love talking about it. Um, so when I went through the process, I graduated, um, you do an internship after you graduate with your degree, then I took the RD exam. And as soon as I passed, I was just so excited to start working as a dietitian. I was just kind of applying everywhere, but my first job actually happened to be at an eating disorder treatment center. So it was really cool how it kind of came full circle. And I ended up doing that when I was feeling so passionate about helping people with eating disorders in the beginning. Um, and then I really just fell in love with the work. I, I really loved working with that population of people struggling with eating disorders. And I just came to realize that, that they are some of the most intelligent and talented people that I ever come across. And I just have so much respect for them in really being so brave and courageous to 
overcome something that's so challenging and so, you know, overcoming in their life. And um, so it's just been so remarkable to be able to watch these transformations that people make from you know, being able to strip away something that completely steals their life and being able to see the evidence of nutrition as they're starting to heal their brains and heal their bodies um, in order to help them live their best lives, like I said in the beginning. So I just completely love this work and I'll never be able to do anything else. What are some signs of unhealthy eating habits and like what, what does an unhealthy relationship with food look like? Yeah, that is such a big question, and we could spend so much time talking about it. So I'll do my best to try to condense it, um, because um, unhealthy relationships with food really kind of come on a spectrum, and I would say it would be from mild to severe, right? So mild would be um, some dieting behaviors and and using kind of a dieting mentality, and severe would be more on the eating disorder place, right? So like full-blown anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder are some of the big ones, right? So some examples of what it would look like in the mild category would be to be like meticulously counting carbohydrates or macros, um, eating only safe foods that you feel like you're only comfortable with eating those, just being like rigidly healthy, feeling like you have to make up for your food by like exercising or, you know, eating differently the next day, any kind of like limiting or cutting out carbs or major food groups, things like that. So all of those I feel like would be in the mild category where it's still disordered, but it's um, not quite severe. And like I said, it's not that there's one or the other mild or severe, but it does come on a spectrum. So, you know, you could go anywhere along the line to starting to get more severe. And unfortunately is sometimes a slippery slope. When you enter into that, you kind of, you get praise for weight loss and it really reinforces those disordered behaviors and kind of sends you on this pattern to really becoming more and more extreme and severe. So then in the severe aspect, what that looks like is really, you know, fasting, uh, eating very little for most days in a row, um, binging and purging. Um, and if you're not familiar with that means, you know, eating large amounts of food in, in one sitting and then inducing vomiting or even just binging with no compensation. So, um, really just you know, using food as your only coping mechanism for dealing with uncomfortable feelings and, and using food in a way as either avoiding food or eating food. So that's really what it would look like in that severe category. Oh, oh and I just wanted to add that I thought it was interesting. Um, like, as I learned more about eating disorders, I didn't know that purging could also be like over-exercising. Like purging yes. isn't just um, self-induced vomiting. Like it could also be just like trying to burn off your calories in whatever way. So, yes, yeah. no, I'm so glad you brought that up because I actually was wanting to say that that purging is more than just vomiting. Um, and also, um, some people don't realize that laxative abuse can also be a form of purging, and so that can be something that can really be super dangerous for your body chemically. And, and so, if that's going on, you need to know that you know, that's something that you need to help 
taken care of. Also with diuretics is like, um, like along with laxatives, those are a really big part of it too. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and like you mentioned about the control aspect of food. And I think that's, um, a big part of like disordered eating habits is just trying to feel in control of something. Could you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really interesting because um, in disordered eating slash eating disorders, there is a lot of times that control aspect and feeling like, okay, this is something that I can choose. This is something I can control and I will restrict or I will control this aspect or this aspect of my eating. But ultimately, when you tighten and tighten the control so much, and you end up going down that slippery slope, like I said, towards severe area, um, you actually end up feeling out of control because a lot of people, um, you know, that struggle with bulimia, binge eating disorder, they feel so out of control around food and they don't feel like they can stop and they don't feel like they have any handle over it. Um, and they might tell themselves like, oh yeah, well, I'm just going to start tomorrow. I'm just going to do it better. I can handle this. I can do it. And then really ultimately they're just led to, um, more binging, um, people that struggle with anorexia, they, they may not end up in binging always. Sometimes it does, but even still they can feel out of control because they can't ultimately have control over their control if that makes Mm -hmm. sense like they they can't stop their behaviors of restriction they can't stop their behaviors of cutting things out and so like I said it's really an interesting um, paradigm where they're trying so hard to control but ultimately they lose the control yeah I agree that it's really important to talk about how eating disorders aren't just all about um body image like, of course, it plays a lot into it for maybe some people, but that eating disorders are just as much like trying to deal with outside factors, um, your own emotions, like, you know, like a coping thing. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I think it's just, it's a way of people trying to put the pieces together of their lives. And a lot of times there's trauma involved and really trying you know, a person is presented with trauma in their lives and they don't know how to cope with that. They don't know how to handle that. And they're just trying to do the best they can. Um, And I know a lot of that control has been like taken away for us during this pandemic, especially like with food and being stuck at home. And how have you seen the pandemic affect some people's relationship with food? Yeah, thank you for asking that because it immensely has. I I think it's definitely magnified any insecurities about food that there has been. If somebody has any kind of insecurity around food or any starting in that mild section, it's magnified it, right? So, um, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic where there's a shortage of toilet paper and maybe people are feeling anxious about having a shortage of food potentially, they're there was really the scarcity mentality and um, maybe a thought process of like, well, I got to get it all while I can mentality, uh, really increasing their eating patterns at that time. 
But there's also people that are staying home all day that aren't used to being faced with their pantries and refrigerators having full access to that all day long. And that's new and, you know, potentially exciting, but also scary to them. And so there's that push and pull there. Um, then there's also people that are turning to food as a way of, you know, comforting and soothing their anxieties and fears of the unknown of this pandemic and what's going to happen. And am I going to get hurt? Are there people around me that are going to get hurt? What's going to happen? Um, and turning to food for comfort is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, it's it's kind of a natural thing for us to do. We get such a strong feedback response of doing that, but it's only a problem if that's your only coping skill that you're going to and, and as a way of kind of numbing out of your emotions. Um, so I think another thing that was really monumental in the pandemic that contributed to people's relationships with food is there was really a lot of fear mongering on social media about the quote unquote quarantine 15, which I hated that phrase, but there really was this, you know, I think people were noticing in the beginning eating more. And so that they were noticing their bodies possibly changing and really uh, being upsetting to them about that. So then there was more shame being placed, fat shaming on any weight gain that there could have been. And then people trying to start to diet and use those restrictive behaviors as a way of avoiding any body changes. So there really was so much going on contributing to people's relationships with food during the pandemic. Um, and, and I really saw a flood of clients come into my practice, um, starting in March, you know, right from the very beginning. And it's really been kind of a consistent flow of clients since then. Um, I know other mental health professionals have seen the same. So it's, yeah, it's definitely had a huge impact. I agree. And I think that I just wanted to share like what I've been seeing on social media as well. I think that's important to talk about. Um, like a lot of like is there, a lot of people said you have all the time in the world like you can go ahead and do the diet that you've been putting off or like do the exercise that you know like you don't have any excuses not to be like in shape and stuff and it's just really sad and especially for a time where we're all really stressed out and scared um to be like I understand why people focus that way but it's just really sad um yeah, I, I don't know. It's just sad that a lot of people went to that during this time. And also, like, yeah. on social media through, um, like, TikTok or Instagram, it's like, want a slimmer waist, like, big butt, like, like ways to be your best self. And it's just, like, I don't know, because, like, that's the most I've ever seen it. Because, like, before the pandemic, I wasn't really paying attention to it. But, like, now that we're all, like, have this, like, free time like scrolling through it I just like see a bunch of just like diet diet oriented messages and it's just it's hard to overcome that mentality yeah absolutely and even having more time to get on your phone and like see all these models that are you know, maybe editing their photos or like, go like, you know, they took a hundred photos to get that one good one that they wanted to post. Like you just seeing that all of the time makes it um, really hard to feel good about yourself if you're already like insecure. So, yeah. Yeah. The comparison game is unreal and really is magnified on social media, of course. Uh, so I think this pandemic is also 
and magnified the comparison as well, like you said, just because you have more time to be on your phone. Marissa, do you want to ask the next question? Sure. Okay. What is diet culture and how does it affect us slash what are the messages it sends to us as a society? Yeah, so this is another really big topic we could spend all day talking about, um, but I'm definitely passionate about it. And I think it's something that everybody needs to know about and be aware about. Um, so diet culture is essentially a system of beliefs that, you know, idolizes thinness and equates, equates thinness to health and moral virtue. So it promotes weight loss as a way of getting some kind of higher status in society of, of being a better person because you've lost weight and you're now in a smaller body. So that's really what um, diet culture is aiming towards. It, it really like demonizes certain ways of eating and elevates others. Um, but ultimately, it really oppresses people who don't match up to the thin ideals. So, you know, it disproportionately harms women, femmes, trans folks, like people in larger bodies, people of color, people with disabilities, like all of these people that, that don't necessarily fit the thin ideal. And it really damages their mental and physical health because it makes them feel like they're not good enough. Anybody who doesn't fit that, if, if that's what they're being told, that if you are, if you lose weight, if you're in this thin body, then you're higher than if they're not, they feel like they're lower. They feel like they're less than and not good enough. And that you're somehow broken if your body can't match that thin ideal. So it's really unjust. Um, you know, the messages it sends our society, it's, it can be really sneaky and can be really hard to recognize sometimes because it is so ingrained in our culture and so ingrained even in our education system about health and about well-being. It's so promoted about being a certain BMI or being a certain body size, right? And so that's what we grow up thinking and believing, but that's not what research shows us about health and body weight. And so, it, you know, diet culture really makes us feel like we have to spend massive amounts of time and money and energy trying to shrink your body. But the research is very clear that almost no one can sustain weight loss for more than a few years. And so it's just this completely unrealistic expectation for anybody to try to attain and it's it's almost like chasing your tail it's something that you'll never be able to really grasp or hold on to because ultimately our bodies don't want to hold on to weight loss our bodies are meant to survive and to thrive instead of you know go through a famine and then stay at the bottom of the famine so does that make sense yeah and I know that like mentality of diet culture starts really young too. Mm -hmm. Um, like, and just like, or just like little kids who 
have see like the adult world and see like skinny people and then reflect that back on themselves and like others reflect that image back on themselves too and it's just like nothing a child can attain either and that like can start really young and I know I've I've seen that for myself and it's been difficult to overcome in that way yeah it's extremely harmful and I'll say almost all of my clients that I see struggle with eating disorders almost all of them have had encounters in their childhood very young childhood where they have felt insecure about their bodies where they've seen you know their mothers or fathers experience dieting and go through diet after diet after diet or you know even family members pinching their fat or pulling at their fat or, you know, making comments about, oh, you shouldn't eat that because of this, or, you know, you don't want to be too big. So it just, it's so damaging. And, and obviously I know parents are very well-meaning and I know they, I can definitely see where parents are coming from because we live in a culture that is so cruel to anybody who doesn't fit that ideal. And I know parents don't want their children to have to stand up to that at school or anywhere else. And so really they kind of become the bully on their children, picking those things apart because they're so afraid of their children being picked apart in society. And it really, um, it really is sometimes the start of an eating disorder and it's really unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, we don't have to talk about it for a super long time if we don't want to, but I think that the quote-unquote obesity epidemic like has definitely skyrocketed people's fears of um, weight gain and being in a larger body and I think that's been really detrimental to like a lot of people's mental and physical health. Yes absolutely I'm really glad you brought that up and I'm really glad that you put it in quotes because (laughs) it's quote unquote obesity epidemic has been completely blown out of proportion. There is not an epidemic on quote unquote obesity because I don't even like that term. There's not an, an an epidemic in that. There's an epidemic on fearing fatness. And it really comes down to people uh, fat shaming and not understanding what true health is because um yeah. When it comes down to it, a person in a larger body can be healthy. That that skinny does not equal healthy because there's plenty of thin people who are very unhealthy. And there are people in larger bodies who are healthy. When you look at their level of activity, their relationship with food, their uh, mental health, emotional health, physical health, you know, all of their vitals and lab values, they are healthy people, right? But maybe they don't fit the quote unquote, thin ideal. And so they're, they're tagged as being unhealthy or tagged as being lazy or that they don't care about their bodies. And it's just untrue. Um, so ultimately that, uh, you know, I know we've probably all seen in school and if you haven't, please don't look it up, but there's these maps that are supposed to create some sort of fear or anxiety about body size in the U.S increasing exponentially and um that research is actually very flawed and um there's a whole story about how that came to be but ultimately those maps were created to stir feelings of 
fearing fatness and fearing the the fat body. And I, I use fatness as a, as a reclaimed word because it's kind of this movement now of accepting body fat and not, you know, assigning a negative word to it, but it's just a descriptor term, just like short and tall are descriptors. So I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea about that, but, um, that people in larger bodies can be healthy and that it's, it's okay. But, um, Marissa, I think you're absolutely correct. That definitely plays into people's fear about body size and their, um, somewhat motivation in, in developing some of these dieting behaviors is, is in the name of health. And, and that's where a lot of the diet culture system beliefs of elevating you is like, well, don't you care about your health? Don't you want to live longer? Don't you want to be this better person? And it's really about losing weight for the aesthetic of not looking that way, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I guess that kind of brings us to, um, like, what is intuitive eating and how can people practice it? Yeah, thank you. So um, another big topic. <laughs> so I hope I can do, I hope I can do it justice. I think it's something that's um, very much misunderstood because there isn't a way to really describe it in a few words. It's pretty complex because it's a whole philosophy and it's a way of living in a way that helps you to become in tune with your body. So we have all sorts of body cues that tell us uh, when to get a drink of water, when to go to the bathroom, when to go to sleep. So we also have these cues that tell us when to eat and how much to eat. And intuitive eating um, says that, you know, we're all born as intuitive eaters. You know, babies eat when they're hungry, they stop when they're full, they grow how they need to grow. And it's through diet culture, the influence of our family, our, the influence of environment, social media, whatever it is that really twist and um, make us question our cues and, and make you feel like, oh, well, maybe I'm not hungry. Okay, well, maybe I'm not full. I don't know what this means. So a lot of people are really disconnected from their hunger and fullness cues and their ability to be able to recognize those signals in their body. So intuitive eating is about helping you get back to that place of connectedness with your body. Um, there's a series of 10 principles that, that it covers. Um, so the first one is reject the diet mentality. The second one is honor your hunger. The third one is uh, make peace with food. The fourth one is challenge the food police. The fifth one is discover the satisfaction factor. And the sixth one is feel your fullness. Seventh is cope with your emotions with kindness. Eighth is respect your body. Ninth is movement, feel the difference. And 10 is honor your hunger with gentle nutrition. So uh, there's all these topics and each of those topics, there's so much to talk about, so much to learn about. Um, but that's essentially what it is. And this, uh, philosophy was really started by two dietitians who used to be in the weight loss industry, Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch. They were in the weight loss industry as dietitians and helping people to lose weight. And they just saw clients coming back 
time after time after time and then figuring out like this doesn't work like there's gotta be a better way like there this this is not okay with me you know they're they're doing their work with someone and maybe they quote unquote succeeded, but in a few years, they're right back to where they started. And sometimes have gained more weight. And so they did a lot of research and, um, you know, they wrote a book called intuitive eating and, and their book is now, um, on its fourth edition. It's, uh, 25 years later. And there has been countless research articles really, um, confirming that intuitive eating is the best way to help you live your authentic life and to have the best relationship with food, to have better health indicators. And um, I, if I can just take, I, I feel like one of the best descriptions of intuitive eating I ever heard was from Elise Resch when I was listening to her one time. She described it as, how we have these three different parts of our brain and we have like our reptilian brain from evolution, you know, just our innate response. We have a stimulus, we have a response and that's it. So we have a body cue, we eat, but we also have this part of our brain. That's the mammalian brain. So we know like our, our pets, our cats and our dogs, they feel emotions so we know that that's a mammalian trait. And as we're also mammals, we feel emotions. We have that influence our thoughts and our behaviors. And, and thirdly, we have this uh, human brain. And it's a higher thinking and reasoning brain. So intuitive eating is really a combination of all three parts of our brain and helping us to not just have a stimulus and have a response feel hungry and eat right away. It's being able to pull in like, well, how am I feeling right now? And does this make sense? Is this logical? And how, how is this eating in the context of the rest of my day and the rest of my week? And so it's really like pulling together all of those. And I like that description so much because I feel like some things that are misunderstood about intuitive eating, when people hear it or learn about it or try to explain it in a short sense they say oh it's just eating when you're hungry and stopping when you're full well no that would be the reptilian brain right and um it's just so much more than that so it's it's a beautiful thing i'm obviously passionate about it i've seen hundreds of people's lives change because of intuitive eating and it's um, like i said just substantiated by so much research it's undeniable I just learned like so much about that. Like it's I get like I you know, I have my own misconceptions about it and just to like learn about it from like, you know, a professional is really cool to just understand it a little bit better. Yeah, yeah I always say sorry, Marissa, I always say once you learn about it, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Like it's just there and it's so real. Yeah, I, w I would just agree that it's very eye-opening to learn about intuitive eating. And, like, I practice intuitive eating myself. And I just think, yeah, like, once you learn about it, you can't go back and you see, um, you know, diet culture in so many places you didn't before. And I just feel like after, like, being introduced to intuitive eating, I'm so much happier. And um, it is true that, like, 
disordered eating can really take over your life and everything and that just getting back to basics like getting back to how you were when you were a kid before like all these outside influence the outside things influenced you you know you're I just feel like it just makes sense like just when you, when you get down to it it's like well this is how we always were so like why would we think about it any differently it's like it's just like you know yeah it's taking everything all all of the stimulus and responses and all of the emotions and everything and putting it together to just like feel your best and do your best and yeah I'm passionate about it too um how can we help people struggling with um disordered eating and like um Marissa asked are there any sources that you recommend to talk about about intuitive eating um yeah, so what do you mean specifically by sources? Just like other outside ways to help or? Well, I, I you could talk about that, but I was also thinking about food psych and like things online that are easily accessible that can teach people more. So just whatever you want to share. Yeah. Yeah, so there are so many great resources out there. Obviously, um, I mentioned Evelyn and Lisa's book, Intuitive Eating. That would be an excellent place to start. Um, they also have an intuitive eating workbook out that's great for more like hands-on really helping you dive into all of the aspects and principles of intuitive eating and kind of reflecting and journaling in how it applies to you. Um, there's a great podcast uh, by a dietitian, an anti-diet dietitian named Christy Harrison, and her podcast is called Food Psych. It's just phenomenal. I have learned so much on her podcast. I love it. I can't praise it enough. She also wrote a book called Anti-Diet that is amazing. It goes through the history of diet culture. It goes through how really diets steal our time, our money, our energy, and well-being. She is phenomenal. So she actually started as a food journalist, uh, and then she you know, was in her own disordered eating and she learned about intuitive eating, became a dietitian, and now is is such a great spokesperson and writer in the anti-diet world. So because of her background in journaling, I just feel like she delivers information in a way that makes so much sense. So just shout out to Christy. She's amazing. Um, there's also great resources. Um, there's a book called Body Respect by Lindo Bacon and Lucy Aframore. And that's a great introduction to a concept called health at every size. That was kind of what I was mentioning a little bit earlier with the quote unquote obesity epidemic, just the, the fact that people have the ability to be healthy at any size and that that health is so much more about so much more than just body size, but it's about your total well-being. So reading the book Body Respect can really be helpful with that. Um, and I think, yeah, I think those are the best places to start. There's, a, you know, intuitive eating website is a great place and they have tons of resources listed on their website as well. I, I really like all those sources and thank you for sharing them. Um, and I think that it might be also good to talk about how common it is to struggle with disordered eating. Like, I guess we maybe touched on it earlier, but I think there's just a lot of stigma around like, 
eating disorders and disordered eating and people discounting themselves because they don't fit the weight requirement for maybe anorexia or just like stuff like that um, or that eating disorders only look one way when there's just so much to it. Oh, absolutely. Which reminds me of another book I forgot to mention that it's called Sick Enough um, because so many people feel like they're not sick enough in order to get help. So I definitely recommend that book. It's written by Dr. Gaudiani. Um, she's a an internal medicine doctor that specializes in eating disorders and her book is phenomenal, just all about eating disorder care. So um, but yeah, there's a lot of people who, who don't think that they're sick enough and, and maybe don't feel like it's time to reach out for help, but, um, eating disorders and even disordered eating comes in all shapes and forms and sizes. And, you know, we have this idea in our minds of maybe what a person with anorexia looks like. And you'd be surprised to know that people with anorexia come in all body sizes and um, same with same with the other eating disorders as well, that you can't just pin down a certain body size or say like, well, I'm not, I don't look emaciated, so I'm fine. But you can still have a full-blown eating disorder at any body size. And I think another misconception about eating disorders or, you know, disordered eating is that it's a quote unquote woman's disease. And that's completely untrue because it, it obviously affects any person along the gender spectrum and, and really a lot of males struggle with eating disorders, but don't admit it or don't want to admit it because they don't know that it's an eating disorder or don't want to admit that they're struggling with that. But eating disorders are really a, a mental illness and it's something that um, doesn't discriminate from any race or color or any background. It really can affect anybody. And I think it, it, it's, starts like we talked about with diet culture infiltrating people's minds and ideas about how they need to be or how they have to look. Um, so, you know, going back to the spectrum, it really just depends on where you fall on that spectrum, but disordered eating is disordered eating wherever you fall on the spectrum. And even if you're in your, in the quote unquote mild category that I, I was mentioning before, um, you can still come out of that and you can still work on that and, and help yourself to be able to heal your relationship with food so that you don't have to struggle in that way. Before I forget, I also wanted to mention, um, especially like earlier in the year, like around March and April, um, intermittent fasting was, um, like a really big thing. And like, I know it's an actual practice, but um, that was like really misconstrued in some people's minds as a way to not eat. And um, I don't know how you've seen that like kind of evolve, but um, intermittent fasting was like a really big deal I heard about at the beginning of the year. Yeah, so intermittent fasting is is a part of diet culture. And I think a lot of what Christy Harrison's book that I mentioned, Anti-Diet, talks about, she calls uh, this thing that we have in diet culture called the wellness diet, where sometimes people don't want to call something a diet because people are starting to recognize like, oh, diet's a, an old-fashioned thing, but I'm doing this for health. Like, I'm doing this for my health and well-being, when in reality, it it is ultimately about losing weight or getting 
quote unquote fit or toned or whatever their body goal is. Um, and so I feel like intermittent fasting kind of spiraled out of control from, from starting in the, in the fitness world of, of how to eat in your best way. And, um, ultimately it's still a disordered eating behavior to skip meals and snacks and to go without food is not healthy or helpful for your body. And, um, you know, they have all this information about how it's best for your body to have this space of not eating when in reality, that's not how your body works. You need carbohydrates to survive. You have to have this, this constant flow of carbohydrates in your body in order to make energy. And when that's shut down, your body can go into starvation mode and trigger all of these other reactions and chemical processes in your body. And so it's, you know, when you learn about the biology and chemistry of your body, intermittent fasting just doesn't make sense. And it's not what's helpful or healthful. And I've seen, like I said, many clients come in to my practice that um, started with intermittent fasting, and then it just got more and more kind of crazy from there. So yeah, (laughs) Um, that was just I know I saw it at camp when I was there, like, we'd be eating meals and like some people would be there and they're like, no, I'm intermittent fasting. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It goes back to, um, sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say, it goes back to this diet culture idea of elevating, like people are kind of bragging like, oh no, I'm intermittent fasting. Like as a way of like, I'm better, or I'm higher or holier than thou because of this thing I'm doing, you know? And it, that's, such a telltale sign of diet culture if people are using it as a way of elevating themselves above others right yeah so some ways that we can improve our relationship with food goes back to my description of the spectrum because it really depends on where you're starting from to know what to do um if you're in the mild category you know you can really start your intuitive eating journey by reading intuitive eating really trying to put into practice the principles refusing to diet, rejecting the diet mentality, really refusing to succumb to diet culture anymore, really trying to get in touch with your body's cues and eating when you're hungry and and stopping when you're full, being able to make peace with food, really just putting together all of the pieces. And if you're finding difficult difficulty with that, don't think that it's because intuitive eating doesn't work. It may be that you just need a little more support or direction with knowing how to apply the principles. And so if you're in that mild category, you can, you know, like I said, start working out on your own. But if if not, and it's not working out, then that would be a good time to seek out an intuitive eating dietitian. And, uh, you know, anywhere along the spectrum, that you can find help in that way. Definitely, if you're in the severe category of having a full-blown eating disorder, then you'll need to set up some kind of treatment team, which usually includes having an eating disorder, intuitive eating uh, dietitian, having a therapist that's also well-versed in eating disorders, and having a medical doctor to make sure that you have all of your medical things aligned. So, that's really where I would start in helping you to heal your relationship with food. Because if you're in the severe category and you're just thrown intuitive eating and trying to just eat when you're hungry and stuff, you're fully be like, I don't even know what hunger feels like. I don't know what that's like. And so 
you have to really have a team that's helping to support you through that journey and knowing how to direct you in all the areas that you need to go. And there are also a lot of good support groups as well um, that I think like a, a treatment team is very important, but also for people that are struggling or just want people that can understand them. There's things like um, just support groups and like step work groups like Eating Disorders Anonymous where you can go and you work the 12 steps and you, um, you know, you, you get into recovery from your eating disorder. So I think that's really yeah. important as well. I love that so much. I'm glad you brought that up because I think people really need that sense of community and that sense of feeling that they're not alone because eating disorders and disordered eating is such an isolated thing, especially because of diet culture placing so much shame on disordered eating. So it can feel really isolated. And if you can have a community to pull together and to say like, yeah, I'm struggling with the same thing. And this is what helped me. Maybe this can help you. Um, one caution I would say though, is that I think Eating Disorders Anonymous is great and has really great principles, but Overeaters Anonymous is different and they have a lot of different philosophies that are not in line with intuitive eating. And I've had many clients who have gone through the um, OA or Overeaters Anonymous program and it has actually worsened their eating disorder. So if you're out there and you're considering going to OA, please don't, but reach out to an eating disorder dietitian. So that's just my little plug there. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a great way to, like, support people. And But um, really, thank you for joining. And you just covered so much information, so much valuable information in such a short amount of time. And I know, like, it's made me learn so much that I've had a lot of misconceptions about. But, um, yeah, thank you a lot. <laughs> um, Marissa, You're welcome. Anything to say? Oh, I just want to say thank you too. And I really appreciate all that you do like on social media too. Like you make a lot of posts about intuitive eating and diet culture. And um, I think it's really important to raise awareness about it and get people into help if they need it. So I think that's great. Yeah, thank you. If if anybody wants to follow him at Nutrition for Hope at, on Instagram. So you can find me there and, and Marissa, you're right. I just am so passionate about this. If you haven't heard it in my voice talking about it, I love this work that I do and I love spreading the message on social media. So it's a great way to, you know, find good resources and good help and reinforcement in your eating, intuitive eating journey. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, thank you so much uh, for joining us and that will bring us to an end. And don't forget to be the change you want to see. All right, thank you so much and have a good day. Bye.